The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two Siege Fall. Chapter 14 Canterbury Tales. The group agreed to mix up their convoy route before leaving Cheshire. They planned to avoid staying on one highway for too long to be less predictable. 93 was the easiest road for making good time and good mileage. It was also the best for heavy loads. Arthur suggested that they didn't stay on 93 too long in one stretch, and not to use the same stretches on the north and southbound trips. Arthur wanted to save 93 south for the first leg of the trip home. It would be easier for pulling a heavy load. This meant that the convoy of trucks needed to follow a back road route north. They took Highway 132 north out of Concord. Trees and houses stood very close to the side of the road. The people in the trucks remained watchful, but the mood was more relaxed vigilance than red alert. Nobody was visible, either on the road or around the tidy houses. The advantage of the smaller twisty roads was that the convoy wasn't visible in any one spot for even a half a minute. Only the periodic radio checks broke the silence. After a while, even the taciturn Hendricks brothers seemed to crave a little sound beside the diesel rumble and the whine of the tires. Charles tried the radio, but had difficulty finding a station. He did find a faint AM station, apparently out of Concord, that reported on the legislature's referendum. The station announced that Governor Vincent chose to not authorize the federal emergency measures. The radio host, who apparently would have voted yes, got into a lively debate with a guest who agreed with the governor. Freedom versus food. The two of them did little beyond chasing their own political tales before the station faded out. Tyler wondered aloud whether he and his household had enough food to get through the winter. The Hendricks were getting an eighth share of the milk production, whatever that amounted to. It was a help, but still not enough. Now that the governor turned down federal aid... Tyler wondered where the additional food would come from for later in the winter. Hard to imagine, Tyler said, that there's enough groceries stashed in all of the pantries in New Hampshire to feed everybody for a whole winter. Something new's got to come from somewhere else, or a lot of folks are just going to starve. That's why we were thinking of you making a wood gas thing for your truck, Charles said. Uh, this truck? It's a diesel. That, that won't work. It needs to be a low-compression engine, preferably a carbureted one. Martin thought about what upscaling Tin Man would entail. I guess it would need to be an engine that didn't have a bunch of fussy management computers either. You know, the kind that regulate the spark based on a bunch of sensors. Wood gas bypasses the usual gasoline system, so some of those sensors won't be happy. They'd probably keep it from running. Tyler didn't like that news. Well, shoot. I was liking the idea of keeping my Silverado running. For what? Business. Charles and I don't have our old jobs anymore. Working around the farm is good and all, but the farm won't supply everything. Heck, nobody's farm's going to produce everything they need. So this trip to get some cows and your gasifier thing has me thinking. Everybody's going to run out of gasoline pretty soon, if they haven't already. But what if I had a truck that still ran? powered by one of your gasifier things. I could be the guy to haul stuff around the state. What stuff? 
Charles asked. You were just saying how there wasn't enough stuff in everyone's pantries to get them through the winter. What's to haul? Well, I was thinking about firewood, mostly. Lots of people out in the sticks, too far to carry a cord of wood by hand, could barter them for stuff. But they won't have stuff to barter with, Charles countered. Their cupboards will be bare, remember? What about fish? Martin asked. You think the fishermen along the coast would still be catching fish? If so, where are they going to sell them? Without trucks, how far could their fish get? Hey, now you're talking. I'll bet folks along the coast are getting sick and tired of eating fish. I could haul stuff like our extra milk and eggs, maybe a whole chicken or two. The coast would trade for fish. Bet they'd trade two for one, a four-pound fryer for eight pounds of fish. We come out ahead. That's an input into the supplies. But that's all fine, said Charles. But this gas thingy won't work on your Silverado, remember? Tyler frowned. He liked his old Silverado. But hey, what about my old beater, huh? That old thing? It'll rattle the teeth out of your head, protested Tyler. Bah, just a little timing gear noise is all. That old straight six'll pull stumps, I tell you. Won't win any races, but it'll get you there. Uh, hey, Martin, I've got an 81 F-250 crew cap. It's one of the 300 cube engines. Got a carburetor, old-style spark, no computers. We just use it to haul the hay wagon and dirty chores like that. Maybe that'll work? Could be, said Martin, but that'll take a lot more figuring and fussing. 300 cubic inches, huh? The burner and chamber will have to be a lot bigger unit to generate enough gas to feed an engine that size. There may be some other issues, too. Sounds like a lot of work. I don't want to sound all selfish about it, but uh, what's in it for me? The Hendricks brothers conferred between themselves. They didn't have a big surplus of anything. They had a good harvest of hay laid up, but Martin didn't need thousands of dollars worth of hay. They planned to barter their hay with the many folks who had horses down in town for the winter. They settled on trading for a share of their future profits as trucker traders. Margaret thought it sounded too much like the cartoon character Wimpy promising to pay Popeye on Tuesday for a hamburger today. Martin agreed that there was potential for a poor return on their labor investment. Being all in the same truck meant that none of their conversations were particularly private. Margaret's reservations prompted Tyler to make his terms more enticing. A quarter of whatever profit they made might still turn out to be nothing, but Martin felt like it was worth the risk. He would need help with a project of that size. He wondered what compensation he might have to offer the helpers. They be willing to gamble time and effort for a possible payback on Tuesday? Checkpoint 20, crackled the radio. Looks like we're about to make turn onto the farmer's road, said Tyler. The caravan turned off the highway and threaded down the cracked blacktop road. Near the end of the road sat the low buildings of Winton Carlyle's dairy farm. The empty trailers made considerable noise over the uneven pavement, so Winton and his family were already outside to greet the convoy. Everyone climbed out of the trucks and stretched. Martin wondered how Susan was faring with her adventure. Had the false alarm vigilance at Indian Lakes worried her? Apparently not. She was smiling and busily engaged in conversation with Eric Emulari. Winton gathered his family and remaining workers around. The handshaking and introductions took a while. 
Martin knew he wouldn't remember all the names. "'I can't thank you all enough,' Winton said. "'I've been worried sick about my ladies. "'The hay problem was going to be an issue later. "'But with the machinery down, we'd have to milk them by hand, "'and I'm short half of my usual crew. "'Poor ladies get real sore when we can't get to them fast enough. "'Seems like we're milking round the clock and we never get ahead. "'I hate to see them suffer.' Winton gave the group a quick tour of his small-scale dairy and store. Red and Margaret went with Winton to look at the cattle that might be loaned. Martin and Landers stood near the trucks. Yeah, Mr. Carlyle was saying he's found a couple of temporary homes for a few more of his herd, Landers said. With us taking six, he thinks he can feed and manage what's left. The deal is we have to bring him back when this outage thing is over. They're just on loan. Well, even if we only get to keep them through the winter, Martin said, the food input is a big deal. I sure hope they're getting that collar farm ready, said Landers. Having some dairy cows in town won't feed everyone, but it'll sure be a morale booster. I wonder if we're going to be able to really take care of them. Margaret did say that she'd help train people to milk by hand, but I agree. It's going to be a lot of work. Margaret can't do it all. Oh, she'll try, but a lot of other people are going to have to step up, Martin said. Looks like your uh, house guest has made a new friend, Landers said. He tipped his head toward the dark red Laramie. Susan leaned against the trailer while Eric was busily telling her some story with animated arm gestures. Susan chuckled from time to time. Yeah, it would seem so, Martin said. One of Winton's crew walked past Martin and Landers with a milk can on a two-wheel dolly. The can appeared to be partially filled from the way the dolly moved and how the man had to push it. He was walking toward the river, which piqued Martin's curiosity. Signs on the road said, Dead End. The last house was boarded up with plywood. Where was the man taking the milk can? Martin caught up with the man as he was passing the Laramie. Uh, excuse me, Martin said. But could I ask you where you're going with that? It doesn't look like there's anything at the end of your road. Martin wondered if it was old milk or some cast-off material. It might not be fit for human consumption, but might be good for food for chickens. They had trucks and trailers. Perhaps he might score some free chicken food and help extend his feed supply. Going across the river, the man said. We cross the old bridge and sell some milk to the folks in Boscoin. Old bridge? Susan perked up. Yeah, said the man. They closed it years ago. It's kind of falling apart, but it's good enough for walking across, so we do. Ooh, I want to see, she said. Susan, Eric, Martin, and Landers all followed the man down the weedy pavement. Past the imposing bridge-closed sign and a veritable hedge of brush that had grown up behind it, stretched the rusty skeleton of an old truss bridge. The road surface was gone. Only the timber cross-ties remained. Winton, or his crew, had laid down sheets of plywood on the timbers to create a walkable path across the old bridge. The worker trundled his load around the Jersey barrier and out across the plywood path. Martin stayed up on the higher ground to watch the man cross. Susan, Eric, and Landers went down to the Jersey Barrier. This is so cool, Susan said. 
This reminds me of the old bridge up the road from where my house was when I was growing up. Oh, that sounds fascinating, said Eric. Martin noticed Eric was a half-step behind Susan, looking her over, top to bottom. In her short jacket, her curves were evident. The way his eyes moved reminded Martin of times on the bus when, in the row ahead of him, a pretty girl sat next to a guy. The girl would close her eyes and maybe doze off. The guy would often keep looking over at the girl, eyes scanning her up and down. It was the same way he had seen guys scanning every inch of the expensive Italian sports cars at the car shows. It was that look of, man, I really want to drive that. Susan hadn't noticed that Eric had stepped up very close behind her. She was focused on the old bridge. When I was a kid, we used to ride our bikes across a bridge just like this one. On the other side was a Christian summer camp thing. They'd always give us ice cream. We were so mad when the town closed the bridge. <laughs> Stupid town. Didn't want to pay insurance on the bridge, so they just closed it. It was a perfectly good bridge. Tightwads made us so mad. Really, said Eric. That would have made me very angry, too. I know just how you feel. Martin could feel himself getting angry. Susan was no sports car to be test-driven. Even after they welded on these big steel plates, Susan continued, we would just climb around and lift our bikes over the railing. This stupid town. Don't mess with a kid's ice cream. Someone called to them from the farm. It was time to load the cattle. Martin intentionally hung back. He caught Eric getting a couple of more looks at Susan's backside. He even faked a stumble so he could bump into her. She thought nothing of it, apologizing for being in his way. Martin noticed his fists were clenched inside his pockets. The drivers had pulled their rigs around so the trailers faced the dirt road to the barns. Winton and his wife led the cows, two by two, to the trailers. The first two were a brown Swiss named Heidi and a large Holstein named Gertrude. A farmhand had two square hay bales on a cart as their travel snacks. Cows were not fast walkers when they don't want to be. The loading was taking a long time. Eric was telling Susan another story that required pantomime. She was amused. Martin was not. Margaret came out of the little dairy store with a box. She looked excited. You'll never guess what I got. Martin was in no mood for guessing games. Okay, fine, don't guess. You'd never get it anyway. She opened the box to reveal half a dozen small glass bottles. Rennet, can you believe it? They had rennet and were willing to trade some away. Martin wasn't connecting the dots. Cheese, Martin. With rennet, we can make cheese out of the milk we get. We probably won't be able to drink it all, so rather than have it go bad or just feed it to the chickens, we can make cheese, so we'll have something for later. Martin finally tuned in to what Margaret was saying. Uh, really? Uh, why would they trade that away? Wouldn't they want it for the same reason you do? And besides, what did you have to trade? Oh, I traded my pistol for it. You what? Martin did a poor job of covering up his shock and outrage. You, you loved that gun. I paid over $500 for that. Margaret rolled her eyes. I know, Martin. You say that every time I don't clean it. But, but now you don't have a gun. It's not like we can go and buy you another one. Martin flailed his arms. What are you going to carry now, huh? 
you'll let me use yours, she said sweetly. I like yours, too. I know you'll let me use it. You can use that chunky one you got from those hoodlums when we get home. But that's not the point, Martin raised his voice. I don't know what you're getting so upset about. Now Margaret was getting defensive. You have a safe full of guns. We needed a way to time-shift our food supply, more than we needed another gun. Besides, you got two from those hoodlums, so we're actually one head. Sheesh, calm down. I am calm, he half-shouted. Oh, right, she snarked back. Well, when you've cooled off, you'll see that this was a better deal than you think. We've got guns. What we don't have is long-term food. Okay, everyone, shouted Arthur. Huddle up here for a little briefing before we head back home. Everyone gathered around the hood of Arthur's Laramie. He had his map spread out and traced the homebound loop. I figure we can take 93 as far as south as Concord, before really encountering much of anyone. Then we go almost all the way past Concord, so if anyone's watching, it'll look to them like we've taken 93 all the way. But here, at checkpoint D, we turn off and take 3A south. That's a pretty sparse stretch of industrial sites. Should be pretty empty. Take that down to Hooksit and then back roads to the other side of Indian Lakes. Out of the corner of his eyes, Martin could see Eric leaning against Susan, as if he were intent on seeing the map. Susan didn't seem to notice. Martin did. He doesn't need to see the map. He's not even driving. Martin's mood grew darker. Okay, everyone, saddle up, said Arthur. If all goes well, we should be home in just a little while. Martin cleared the round out of the chamber of his pistol before handing it to Margaret. He fished out the two magazines from his pockets. She smiled slightly. There was no question that he would let her use his pistol. As he took his seat in the Silverado, he checked the action of his carbine. Margaret was correct. Her trade had not left her defenseless. They had three guns between the two of them. She was thinking more as a team than he was. Um, look she began cautiously. I can tell that you're still kind of upset over my trading my pistol. She waited for a response, but got none. And I'll admit I was a little impulsive and rash, but I had no idea the Carlisle farm had a little dairy operation, too. No one said anything about that. She allowed for a response again. Or I would have brought along things to trade with, if I had known. Martin wasn't particularly upset that Margaret had traded away her pistol. He was more upset over something else. She was right, as usual. They did have enough weapons at home to equip everyone in the house. His collection wasn't the idealized high-power arsenal that people argued about on the forums. But then, the Simmons house wasn't likely to be repelling a platoon of jihadists, either. For local trouble, like shopping cart beggars his gun assortment was sufficient. Margaret was also right that his battlefield pickups had almost compensated for her trade. The strange gun was of little help. It needed special ammo that he didn't have. The high point was a caliber he had plenty of, but it had only one ten-round magazine. The high point wasn't an even swap for his nine, with its multiple seventeen-round magazines. Still, for local ruffians, the high point was a serviceable tool. 
Martin did actually feel a little better that Margaret now carried his nine, her favorite packed less punch, which was probably why she liked it better. In the peculiar times they were living in now, he preferred that she pack more punch. There was some comfort in that thought. Real rennet is not going to be easy to come by any more, Margaret continued. Heck, it was hard to come by even before all of this. Now, well, that's why I kind of jumped on it. Truth is, I'm not sure what I might have brought up to trade with the Carlyles that they would have wanted. Mrs. Carlyle was saying how they were pretty well set for carbs and canned veggies. With cows, of course, they weren't short for proteins either. They wouldn't have wanted any jam. She waited for him to respond, but he continued to glower out the window, watching his quarter. She touched his arm, as if to console him. I know you're still angry right now, but you'll see, Martin. It was for the best, making cheese. I think I remember what we used to do, anyhow. That'll be a big help for getting us through the winter. You'll see. He wasn't angry at her. He fancied he was angry at Eric but perhaps more with himself. Martin knew that she was right about the gun and the cheese. Being able to preserve any excess milk would extend their protein supply. How much was in question, but it had to help. He would have told her all that, but his mind was clouded with other thoughts while he watched his quarter of the bleak landscape roll by. Why had he gotten so angry at Eric's behavior? Susan was an attractive woman. Did he expect that a young man wouldn't notice? What business was it of his if someone did? Martin wasn't her brother or any other form of family member to have any grounds to object about some other man's attentions. He was just a bank customer. She was just a teller. She needed a place to live after her house burned down. He happened to have a spare room. That was all. He had no right to object to anything. And yet he was objecting, and that bothered him. He looked over at Margaret, dutifully watching her quarter, with his pistol at a casual low ready. He wanted to tell her everything. He missed their long chats over almost anything—Plato, politics, who was the best James Bond. That was before the kids got to the age of soccer tournaments and music lessons, which meant booster clubs, fundraisers, and PTA meetings. That led to youth group outings at the church, which grew into ladies' aid projects, which absorbed a good deal of Margaret's time. Whenever he and Margaret were alone together, which was rare, it seemed like all they ever talked about was the kids' activities. The back seat of the Hendricks truck wasn't a good place to start a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. He also realized that he wasn't exactly sure what he wanted to say. He wanted to tell her about Trisha's stupid flirt. Margaret would probably think it was hilarious. A young blonde flirting with him. It really was quite absurd. Margaret had said the Dunnans were just young and foolish, and that they would wise up quickly. Perhaps Trisha's flirts were just her flavor of young and foolish. Adams could be his sleeping on watch. Perhaps they would grow up quickly as the new reality dawned upon them. Maybe Martin was making too much out of both of them. He could probably talk to Margaret about the Dunnans' silly behavior and even get a shared laugh out of it. The Dunnans, however, were not what had him in a dark mood. It was Eric's behavior back at Winton's farm. If he brought up Eric's behavior, he could just about hear Margaret telling him that it was none of his business. Susan was a grown woman who could sort out her own social life. 
In fact, Margaret would probably see Eric's attentions as a good thing, that Susan needed a social life. Yet, what kind of social life does libidinous opportunism make? Martin spiraled back into disliking how Eric went about his attentions. What Martin saw was not the proper respect a man should show a woman. Susan didn't need a new jerk to replace her old jerk boyfriend. A decent man wouldn't leer at a woman's backside and say obsequious things just to curry favor. That just wasn't right. Martin fancied that he was objecting to Eric's disregard for proper gentlemanly behavior. Yet, that wasn't quite right either. Checkpoint C, the radio crackled. All you dumplings okay back there? Each of the drivers checked in. The taller buildings of Concord were coming into view. Look sharp, everyone. Switch to Channel B once we make the turn at Checkpoint D. Martin shook off his darker thoughts so he could concentrate on watching his quarter more carefully. His quarter faced the city. There wasn't any activity to be seen from 93. The city looked like it always did from 93, like a scale model. There weren't any cars on the highway. Nothing was moving on the crossroads either. Martin checked the rooftops as they rolled by to see if there were any scouts watching them pass. He saw none. Checkpoint D, said Arthur. Charles tuned the radio to the new channel. Everyone checked in. The trucks all made slow turns with their heavy loads. No one wanted to topple over one of their cows. Martin continued to watch for any activity, but saw none. No cars on the roads, no pedestrians. The feeder road that led to Route 3A didn't feel as claustrophobic as Route 132 had, though it had its moments. Small businesses rolled by. Curls of smoke from chimneys of tidy houses testified to someone being home, though no one was visible. Route 3A itself was a mix of thick woods, isolated 19th-century farmhouses, and open tracks. Some of the open spaces were abandoned hayfields waiting for the doom of progress. Bulldozers. Some of the open spaces had already suffered the bulldozers and become staging yards or storage areas for construction firms. Martin tried to keep his attention focused on watching his quarter. Being the last set of eyes to see that side of the road meant that it was unlikely he would see anything the other right-side watchers had missed. Nonetheless, there was always the possibility of someone, concealed from the others, peeking out too soon as they passed. That was what happened to Margaret when they saw the man in blue and gray in the median on 93 on the way up. He tried to use vigilance as a wall against his cluttered thoughts, with mixed results. The forest and open commercial lots were giving way to tighter-spaced houses. He reasoned that they must be getting closer to the little town of Hooksett. Sidewalks were a clear sign of suburbia. Checkpoint E, people, radioed Arthur. Gentle left here. Keep it tight, everyone. Martin noticed how the utilitarian houses from the middle 1800s, plain boxy things, had been gussied up with gingerbread trim from the Victorian era. It reminded him of the old neighborhoods in Somerville where Susan's apartment had been. Getting kicked out by her old boyfriend, then losing her apartment to a fire, was quite a blow. She had been through a lot of turmoil already. The last thing she needed was some slathering jerk scheming how to make a score.
That was totally not fair for her. Alert, people. Hold up. Slow up. Something's not right up ahead. All ears were tuned to the radio. Tyler and Charles tried to peer around the horse trailer ahead of them to no avail. Not liking this, radioed Arthur. New plan. Bear left. Follow me. Keep it tight. The trailer ahead of them started to pull away quickly. Tyler had to accelerate it as quickly as a heavy load would allow, and so as to not topple his cargo. The convoy turned left just before going onto the Hooksett Bridge. As they went down the sloping road, Martin caught just a glimpse of a barricade across the far end of the bridge. Two abandoned vehicles sat along the railing near the middle of the bridge. Arthur turned a harder right. The other trucks followed in close order. After passing under the Hooksett Bridge, Arthur accelerated. Tyler sped up to close the gap. Everyone wanted to know why the change of route, but engaging in radio chatter was not the thing to do at the time. Arthur was trying to get them all clear of the bridge area. Okay, dumplings, wide spot, on the left, pull in, two by two. Drivers, meet in the middle. The rest of you, take the corners and watch for anything. Tyler turned onto a paved wide spot on the left side of the highway. He turned faster than he should have. Martin had to hang on to Charles's seat back. He wondered if the cows were knocked over by such things. He felt no loud thumps. Perhaps cows and trailers go with a wide stance mode so they're more stable. Cows probably didn't like tipping over. Tyler pulled up to the right of the truck with landers in it. The four drivers hurried to meet in the middle of the four trucks. Martin and Charles hopped out. Charles climbed behind the Silverado's bed, eyes on the wooded embankment across the road. Martin jogged behind the trailer to take cover and watch the road behind them. Margaret joined him. He motioned for her to take cover in the corner of the adjacent trailer and keep an eye on the wooded riverbank. The look on her face was only partially fear at the prospect of trouble. The rest of her expression was all business. If there were spiders, she was going to squash them. She peeked with minimum exposure, the nine mil racked and at low extended ready. Martin sighted over the top of his carbine while looking for any sign of movement between the scrubby pines down the road. Martin, come here, Arthur boomed. Martin ran to join the meeting. I didn't like what I saw back there, so we got to change our route. I didn't want to go back on 93, but it's either that or go into Manchester, which I like even less. We could be headed into trouble, and we can't afford any blind spots. You and Charles ride in Tyler's trailer. You'll be our rear guard, our tail gunners. Okay, back in, everyone boomed Arthur. Martin grabbed his ready bag from the back seat as he told Charles about their new assignment. Margaret gave him a worried look. He squeezed her hand. You take care of Tyler, okay? He's a worrywart, he smiled. Oh, you're a goof. She mustered a slight smile. Before Martin and Charles had the trailer doors closed, Tyler was pulling away to catch up with Landers's truck. What the heck was that all about? Charles asked. I guess Edith spotted something on the bridge with her binoculars, just as we came over that last rise. I got a quick look at it, too. There was a barricade of junk across the road on the far side of the bridge, and two cars still out on the bridge looked suspicious to Arthur, so he decided to change our route. But that was the only bridge across the river, Charles said. Without going into Manchester, that is. 
Uh, he's not taking us into Manchester, is he? No, 3A goes under 93. He figures to get on to 93 at exit 10. That'll get us over the river. Then we get off at exit 8. He didn't like going back on 93, but it was better than whatever might have been waiting on the other side of that bridge. Martin pulled his stocking cap down tighter and zipped up his coat. The cold wind whistled through the open slat trailer. Wasn't it around nine? Wasn't it around exit nine that you saw that guy on the rocks? Charles asked. Uh, yes, it was. Martin held his walkie-talkie close. Hey, uh, Big Apple, this is Tailgunner One. New route takes us by previous sighting. Keep a sharp eye out in the Balboas. Balboas? Charles asked. Rocky Balboa. The guy in the rocks. Get it? I didn't. I sure hope Arthur does. Well, we can't just say things outright, Martin complained. Yeah, and if he didn't get it, then what good was it, huh? Roger on the Balboas. Tailgunner one. Nice call. Martin smiled at Charles, who could only shrug. Sometimes obtuse movie references worked. Sometimes they didn't. Martin had to smile at movie references as code. Arthur looked like a Rocky fan. When Martin had tried to reference an old Bogart movie, Susan didn't get it. Susan. Now he wondered how she was doing. She was... <clears throat> she was in the lead vehicle. Was all this freaking her out? Was that stupid Eric doing anything to calm her, or was he just trying to look down her shirt like guys on the buses did when a pretty woman sat beside them? Martin could feel his jaw clenching. This is it, dumplings. Follow me. Keep tight, and when we get up topside, stay in the center. The convoy made wide and hasty turns up the on-ramp. Arthur slowed his pace a little to allow the stragglers to form up, then he picked up the pace. Martin's side of 93 was the back side of an old Manchester suburb. Fences, the backs of houses, could be seen through the line of trees, but no men on the rocky bluff. Break, break, break! Arthur shouted into the radio. Break, break, break! Spike strip! Form a line abreast! All stop! Ready to fire! Martin barely had time to grab the corner post before a sudden S-curve and stop maneuver. Both cows were thrown against their stall partitions, but neither fell. Tyler pulled his truck up on the far left of all the others. The rocky bluff on the Manchester side was obscured by the trailer next to him. He heard a couple of shots. Were they fired by someone in the trucks or someone outside? The median was a tangle of small bare trees, brush, and tall grass that grew up around a ridge of ledge rock. In places, the old bedrock stood ten feet tall, and other places it had crumbled, leaving gaps and rubble. Through one of those gaps behind them strode two young men in blue hoodies. Both had pistols held high, like banditos in an old western. They approached the vehicles from behind. Martin swatted Charles on the shoulder to get his attention. The lead hoodie walked with a sort of skipping, stiff-legged gait, a swaggering victory strut. Now we gonna pop them and get us some nice big wheels, eh, bro? Said Hoodie One. Hoodie Two muttered something inarticulate. I'll take right, you take left, whispered Charles. Up on the cliff, blurted Martin's walkie-talkie. Two of them behind that lone boulder. The two hoodies heard Martin's radio. 
They leveled their pistols at the trailer doors. Martin took aim at Hoodie 2. Charles fired, clipping Hoodie 1 in the side. The loud report inside the trailer spooked the cow behind Martin. It reared and kicked. Its hoof only grazed Martin's leg, but it sent him down. His carbine clattered onto the floor beside him. Three shots rang out, punching holes in the metal door, not far from where Martin had been standing. Martin pulled his carbine close. In a prone position, he propped it up to aim between the lower vent slats in the door. His aim, at center mass, was hindered by the nervous cow rocking the trailer. While Hoodie Two was momentarily distracted by his cohort doubling over, Martin squeezed off a shot. It hit Hoodie Two high in the shoulder. It spun him halfway round. Hoodie Two tried to reacquire aim on Martin's muzzle flash with his offhand, but Martin had a second shot off before that. Martin's second shot hit Hoodie Two in the hip. He went down like a broken chair. Hoodie One had staggered back into the brush to lean against the median rocks. Charles had a bead on him, but was holding his fire. Two bandits in the back, Martin radioed. Both down. Uh, not out uh, yet. Two more ahead in the median, said Arthur. Can't get out. Need to clear those strips. Two up behind a boulder on a cliff, said one of the other drivers. We'll need to keep the front two down, said Arthur. Little dumplings, you need to keep that pair down. We need to take these two guys out of the fight, Charles said. I'm going to throw open the doors. Cover me from the guys up high. Keep their heads down. I'm going out. We need cover fire on the boulder, Martin radioed. Shots cracked and echoed off the bluff. Sprays of rock dust sparkled around the boulder. Martin saw no heads peeking up. Okay, clear, Martin shouted to Charles. Charles ran out to kick Hoodie Two's gun out of reach. Martin kept an eye on the bluff and his sights on Hoodie Two, while Charles squat ran over to Hoodie One. He was leaning against the rocks, bent over, holding his side. Two shots came from the boulder, but didn't appear to hit anything nearby. More shots came from the trucks. Martin ran out to fallen Hoodie Two and dragged him, in jerks and tugs, behind the cover of the trailer. The man was hit in the shoulder joint. The hip shot must have hit a tendon. The young man was trembling. With the barrel of the carbine in the man's diaphragm, Martin patted the man down. He found a fixed blade in one pocket. In his waistband, he had a small pistol. Martin pocketed both. He and Charles needed to work their way forward to clear the spike strips. But Martin couldn't leave the wounded hoodlum unattended. What if the hoodlum was faking incapacitance? The hood strings of the man's sweatshirt gave Martin an idea. He cut off one knob, pulled the drawstring out, then rolled the man on his stomach. Martin's knee in the man's back caused significant pain, but this was no time for gentle manners. He tied the man's wrists together, sending the cord through one of the man's belt loops. Yeah, here, this'll keep your pants up, too, Martin muttered. He then hurried to the median rock that Charles crouched behind. Gut shot on that other one, said Charles. Don't know how bad. Got his gun. Tied his hands with my belt. He's swearing a blue streak, but he's too shook to fight. This one is out of it, too, said Martin. Disarmed him. Tied him up. Shots continued to pop randomly from both the median rocks and the trucks. The convoy was stopped in a hopeless crossfire. Backing up four horse trailers under fire was out of the question. We need to take out those guys up front, said Martin. 
Got to clear that obstruction before the guys up on the bluff get reinforcements. Charles nodded. Yeah, we got to get everybody off the X. The two of them scrambled over the low area and the median rocks. In an ad hoc version of Bounds, they took turns standing out of the scrubby brambles to provide cover and see where the other two bandits were. They advanced up along the cut rock face. When Martin finally saw the other two median bandits, they also saw him. They turned and opened fire. Martin leaned against the rocks, trying to lie as flat as he could. There wasn't as much outcrop as he had wished. Hits on the rock sent dusty fragments into his neck and ear. It stung, but not terribly. "'Arthur!' called Martin on his walkie-talkie. "'Cover fire! On the two up front!' Martin heard several shots echo from the other side of the median rocks. The fire at Martin and Charles ceased. One of the hoodlums returned fire to the trucks. The other watched Martin and Charles for an opportunity to shoot. Charles pointed to a hunk of rock in the tall grass. It was the size of a bowling ball bag. You go low. I'll go high, Charles said. Martin nodded. Go, Charles shouted. Martin dropped and rolled to get behind the bowling bag rock. He propped the carbine on his free arm beside the rock. The hoodlum fired low at Martin. A spray of dirt and grass flew up. Charles stepped out of the brush. Both hoodlums saw Charles and turned to fire. Martin squeezed off a quick shot, but nothing changed. He must have missed. He squeezed off two, three, more, not letting the barrel settle much between shots. The hoodlums ducked back. Charles fired as he moved. One hoodlum slumped against the rocks. The second jumped over the rocks and ran. Arthur, or one of the others in the front, must have hit him. He dropped his gun, continued running for another dozen yards, and eventually crumbled onto the road. Martin ran up to the leaning hoodlum, front sight on his face. The young man stared at Martin with wide eyes. He tossed his pistol into the grass and held his uninjured hand up. Martin quickly patted him down, finding only an empty magazine and a small box of rounds. The man had been hit in the arm and thigh. Both shots went straight through. He was hurt, but not badly enough to knock him down. Martin motioned for the man to lay on the grass, which he did. Martin radioed, Two up front or down. He knelt to dig around in the grass with one hand to find the hoodlum's pistol. It was another one of those seventies guns. Cut the spike strips, Arthur shouted. Martin peered over the rocks. Stretched across all three lanes were eight-foot boards, two-by-twos, with long nails pounded through them on three sides. The boards were tied together with nylon rope. The hoodlums had planned to immobilize the convoy with flat tires, but Arthur, or Edith, had spotted it in time to pull up short. "'Watch that guy!' Martin said to Charles. Martin reached in his pocket for the fixed blade he had taken from Hoodie Two. "'Cover fire! I'm going to cut the ropes!' he radioed. More shots cracked and popped from the trucks to the boulder up on the cliff. Martin ran out, wary eyes on the bluff. As he grabbed the rope to cut it, he realized the whole assembly wasn't tied down. He could drag it all aside faster. He grabbed the rope between the two boards and ran toward the bluff, dragging a spiky tail behind him. Charles came around the rocks. We're clear! Let's roll! Keep up some cover fire! The Laramie roared past Martin. As it passed, he could only see Arthur and Edith through the bullet-holed windshield. The two smaller trucks formed a line behind. The Silverado veered into the breakdown lane. 
Its windshield was pocked with several bullet holes, too. Margaret was riding shotgun. She seemed unhurt. Their eyes met for just a moment, but it was long enough. Even that brief glance was an energy drink to his soul. He didn't want her to come along if there was going to be any danger. They said they didn't expect any danger. Jump in! Tyler radioed. Martin ran after the trailer. Charles grabbed the open door of the trailer and swung himself in. He held an arm out to help Martin in. A few shots popped from the boulder. Hits landed on the pavement a dozen yards away. Martin jumped in, propelled by Charles's boost, but his feet slipped in the loose hay. He landed flat on his back. It knocked the wind out of him. Are you in? Tyler asked. Martin had a hard time getting enough breath to squeak a yes into his walkie-talkie. All right, Tyler shouted. Hold on, we got some catching up to do. The Silverado clattered loudly as it accelerated. Loose hay and debris slid out the back of the trailer before Charles could get the doors closed. The cows scrambled for footing, but didn't fall. Charles helped Martin up off the floor. You all right? Martin could only nod. Good. Maybe you should sit down for a bit. Charles kept an eye out of the rear slats. You look like you got hit. Charles pointed at Martin's cheek. Martin felt his neck. It didn't hurt, but he had blood on his hand. When Martin regained his breath, he radioed, Tail gunner's okay. How's everyone else? He wondered how Margaret really was. He hoped she had kept her head down. Susan was in the lead vehicle. Was she okay? She carried no weapons, so certainly couldn't have been exposed for anything. Me and Edith are okay. Eric's in the second truck. Susan is tending to Landers in our back seat. He got hit in the arm and back. Martin felt a warm rush of relief to hear that Susan was okay. He wondered what had happened to Landers. Big dumpling okay, said Tyler. Me too, said Margaret in the background. Martin was pleased that she sounded confident, not worried or scared. Margaret was a sturdy one. Dumpling three, crackled the radio. Cuts from flying glass, but okay. Low on ammo, though. Ammo? Martin checked his carbine. His magazine was empty. Had he been trying to fire an empty gun? He couldn't remember. Everything seemed to happen in slow motion, but also in a nanosecond. He pulled himself up to standing. His ready bag sat against the wall, near the door, in cow poop. Well, at least the cow poop kept it from sliding out of the trailer, he thought. Cow poop makes a peculiar silver lining. Sometimes silver linings can be like that. He dug out another magazine. He tried to push it in, but seemed to have little control over his hands. Pirate hooks would have been more useful. Eventually, he got the magazine positioned well enough to push it in until it clicked. From his bag, he pulled out a bandana to hold on his neck. Time for a change, radioed Arthur. Hold it tight. Follow me. The trailer shifted right, then took a long left off the exit. Martin held onto the slats with one hand. His breathing sped up. His fingers tightened around the grip of his carbine. Was there another ambush waiting for them? The convoy raced down the empty highways. If he's going the way I think he is, said Charles, we'll be going past Indian Lakes in a bit. Better get back on our posts. Keep an eye out. The pace slowed to a less frantic pace as the convoy turned onto the smaller roads. Look sharp again, said Arthur. Going by the lakes now. 
Martin scanned the brown foliage as it rushed by. He was intent to spot anything amiss. A glimpse of blue amid the brown caught his eye. I see one, Martin shouted. I'll get him. He shouldered his carbine and sighted. Hey, 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 Charles clapped a hand on Martin's shoulder. The move startled him out of his aim. You don't have to shoot everything that moves. That guy's just watching us, not doing anything. You gotta know when to turn it off, man. Charles' words came like a bucket of ice water. They were off of the X. Martin watched the man in the brush as he got smaller in the distance. He wasn't doing anything but watching, probably nothing more than curious at the sight of four horse trailers going by. He could be a father, or a husband, or simply a guy out looking for beech nuts. Martin took a deep breath and blew it out slowly. He suddenly felt very cold. Who knew that hauling cows could be so dangerous, eh? I've started posting some bits of book six in the series over at my Buy Me a Coffee site. Character backgrounds, plot bits, etc. Some bonus material for my supporters and members. If you're interested, check it out at buymeacoffee, all one word, dot com, slash, McRoland, also all one word. Check it out.